You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to him. Well, good morning. My name is Danny, one of the pastors here on staff, and you get me today uh, because uh, Mark Pritchard is with a team that is ministering in South Korea, and I'm happy to report that they made it safely there and did so in under 24 hours, unlike the last trip that was taken. So we're grateful for that. Uh, They're gonna minister at Woolby, which is a ministry school there, um, suffering for Jesus on the beach, on an island in South Korea. So this morning, we get to open the word and we get to think about the idea of forgiveness and how forgiveness is always a chosen suffering. To do this, we'll talk about forgiveness as we see it in the Old Testament and then forgiveness as we see it through the cross in the New Testament. And then we'll understand Jesus' expectation for those who have tasted gospel mercy. And lastly, we'll take a look at what it is to be those who forgive and, and pick at a little bit counterfeit forgiveness and genuine gospel forgiveness. Got a lot of ground to cover today, and so if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and get them out. We're gonna open up to Matthew chapter 18. Read along with me in whatever copy you've got, whether it's your Bible, the Bible that's in the chair back, or your favorite Bible app. Thank you, technology. But we're gonna read it, um, and the physical copies there in front of us, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we get an easy passage today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come together this morning, we acknowledge that you alone are God. We trust that your word is sufficient We confess that we fail regularly and repeatedly fall short of your will for us. Thank you for the work of Christ which extends forgiveness to us and others. Through your word and your spirit, help us to know more fully your forgiveness today. Amen. The theme of forgiveness can be traced all over scripture. 
both through the Old Testament, as we learn about forgiveness, and in the New Testament as well. And it teaches us about God's character through this, forgiveness, and its possible results in the life of believers. And as we talk about the theme of forgiveness, I would like to acknowledge something. That sometimes when we teach on forgiveness, it is unpacked in a way that is incomplete or overly simplified. And in doing so, can bring unfortunate and unintended pain to those that have suffered genuinely. I desire to represent the word well, but we can only cover a small slice of what the Bible has to teach us about forgiveness this morning. Suffice it to say, if you are in pain today, God offers his comfort. If you've been hurt, he is near to you today. His desire is always for your best. It is my prayer that regardless of what pain or relational wreckage or sin that you've experienced, that you can taste the freedom today that comes through knowing his forgiveness. Given our short time together, I'll aim to focus on how God has radically offered forgiveness through his son and how understanding that forgiveness can both allow us to receive and share that love. Next Sunday... Cato, one of our elders, will share in more detail about what God's forgiveness invites us to experience as a church community that is named by the gospel. So today is part one, essentially knowing gospel forgiveness, and next week is part two, sharing gospel forgiveness. You won't want to miss as Cato shepherds us through the word. Since the beginning of creation, God has made a way for his people those who were separated from him because of their sin to receive forgiveness and experience a renewed relationship with a holy God. And since the days of Adam and Eve, God used sacrifices as a means to repair what's been broken, to offer repentance and to clean the rift which was created through sin. People would give offerings to the Lord and worship and offer sacrifices as a means to own their sin. Both of these things were given by God through his law as a way for imperfect people like you and I to maintain relationship with a God who is holy, to confess our wrongs that we might be made right before him. And lately much has been written about the nearness of God. And it is a beautiful truth that God is close to the brokenhearted, that he hears our cry but it's important to notice that he is also holy, set apart. There is not anyone or anything like him anywhere. He is perfect in all his ways without limit in accomplishing his will. So in order for God, who is holy, to be in relationship with sinful people, he must make a way for us to be made clean. It says in James 4, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. God will draw near to us. But we as God's people in humility should confess our sin and mourn its effects in our lives and in our community that he might cleanse us and restore us. We could spend plenty of time looking at any number of the sacrifices that are shown throughout the Old Testament, and that for the sake of time, we're going to focus on the 
preeminent sacrifice that God established through the law. Once a year, the nation of Israel would observe the Day of Atonement, still celebrated today as Yom Kippur. On this day, once a year, the high priest would offer sacrifices as a means to cleanse the temple, the priest, and all of God's people from their sin. Leviticus 16 is where it goes into stunning detail. The high priest would begin by setting aside special clothing and ritually cleansing himself, and after he was ready, he would take two goats from the tribe of Israel as an offering for sin, and a bull to atone for the sins of him and his family. Then he would give the two goats before the Lord, cast lots to decide which one would be offered to the Lord and which one would serve as the scapegoat. The goat for the Lord would then be offered to him on the altar and the bull as well, and the blood would be sprinkled to make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites in Leviticus 16. The high priest would then lay his hands upon the scapegoat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion and sins of the people, everyone. And then the goat would be carried away outside of the tribe, into the wilderness, sent away to be banished from the presence of a holy God, representing how God had removed the sin from the people. Leviticus 16, 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord for all your sin. And then in verse 34, this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. There's no shortage of detail in Leviticus 16. As we read about this sacrificial system, we know about the particular commands, and as we read it as 21st century readers, it can seem very specific. The washing, and the blood, and the specific clothing, and the incense, and the order. The ritual particularity can seem overly specific and even cumbersome. Yet God, who is holy, chose these means to reveal himself to his people and to make a way for a holy God to make reparations for their sin. So the system he set up was not cumbersome and it was not overly duty, but it was in fact a grace that they might draw near. The sacrifices were costly, but, but forgiveness is always costly. In Galatians, it talks about how the law was given to point to our greater need. It says that the law was given as the people's guardian, preserving them until the finished or until the promised Messiah had arrived. Centuries later, after that first day of atonement, the promised lamb came. And he came to right our wrong. He himself broke in. We hear it a lot, but it's wild that the one who spoke creation into being, the one who, who holds all things together by the power of his word, humbled himself, came as a man, and became obedient to death on a cross, that he might heal what we had broken. The Bible uses an unexpected word to describe the motivation of Jesus as he set his eyes towards the cross. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the same, the shame. And it says later, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
He chose suffering so that we could know forgiveness. He chose to take on our sins so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. Like the scapegoat, all of our sin was placed on him. The author and sustainer of life submitted to death so that we could receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. May that never get old. Paul, in musing on this, to Timothy writes, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I, have, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Forgiveness came at an incredible cost, but it was a chosen suffering. He laid down his life in death that we might taste true life. We see that God has provided a means for his people to be reconciled to him. And it's a stunning truth. The forgiveness remains on offer to all of us, anyone of any background, regardless of sin, to those who come penitently before the Lord, trusting in his righteousness to replace our sin. This reality is something that should transform us, that should transform our church community turning us from people that are embittered and that keep accounts into people that can let go, that keep short accounts, that are willing to overlook offenses. But Jesus knows that this is a high calling. It's a hard task. And so we find in Matthew 18, he begins to teach his disciples about how to reconcile when there has been sin levied against another. If you got your Bibles, get back to Matthew 18. Starting in verse 15, he's teaching the disciples about how to settle disputes. He says that when someone sins against another, that the person who has sinned against should go to the, to the party that offended them individually, not with help, not after getting prayer support from others, but first engaging that individual. And only if there cannot be reconciliation found, others should be brought in. He desires for us to be a community that pursues confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So, much like us, Peter hears this and he has questions. The butts start coming, but what about this and what about that? He begins to wrestle with the full weight of forgiveness. He asks the Lord in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. It's a fair question, right? We have uh, a, a phrase that's common in English. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So Peter's offering like eight times, right? That's a lot. He's actually doubling the cultural expectation for forgiveness by asking that of Jesus, but Jesus blows that up and responds with totally different math. Your Bible likely either says 77 times or 70 times seven, which is 490, yeah? That's good. (laughs) Budding mathematicians in our midst. Jesus wants us to think about forgiveness totally differently. 
One commentator puts it, if you are still counting, then you are not forgiving. Just so we don't get tripped up by the numbers, Jesus comes to forgiveness from another angle and he tells us a story. And it's important to know that as we read this text, it directly follows Peter's question. So Jesus is desiring to answer his question with this parable in this context. Matthew 18, 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owned him 10,000 talents. I don't know if you're familiar with the denomination of talent, but I was not, and so I did some digging. And I learned that a talent is equal to the amount of an average income earner could hope to, to gain in a year of working. And so 10,000 talents is more than the average person could hope to earn in 100 lifetimes. I also learned that the number 10,000 is the biggest number that the Greek language had a specific word for. Kind of like a bazillion, right? But that's not a real word. And so let's test our knowledge here for a minute. Accountability on the screen. What comes after 1,000? What's the next biggest denomination? A million? What about after that? Billion? What about after that? Trillion? We're doing good. What about that after that? Quadrillion? Okay, voice is getting quieter after that. A quintillion? The next one? A sextillion? How about after that? A septillion? After that? An octillion? Getting quieter. Two more? A nanillion? And the last one is a decillion. Now, there's more. I know some of you fact checkers are going to be like, what about a Google? Okay, you can look it up. It's, it's there. But let's not get lost in the numbers, which was Peter's temptation. Jesus intends for us to understand that the servant before the king had a debt that was simply unpayable in one or a hundred lifetimes. Since he can't repay the debt, the king orders that he be thrown into prison, that all his stuff be sold, and he, along with his family, pay for the debt in a debtor's prison. Spoiler alert, if he goes in, he's never getting out. The servant knows this, so he cries out to the king and begs for mercy. Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. I don't know if you've been there. You open the mail, and on the bill you see more zeros than you have dollars in your bank account. You answer the call, you don't know the phone number of, and it's a bill collector talking about making reparations, maybe putting a lien on your assets. Your paycheck begins to be garnished, and every possible permutation of a solution seems to end up in financial ruin or bankruptcy. The servant is desperate. He feels freedom running through his fingers like sand, and so he begs with everything that he's got for him, for his family, for his well-being, and then something remarkably unexpected happens. The king, out of pity for him, released him and forgave him the debt. In the instant, the word of the king, the servant, is forgiven. Can you picture it? His clenched fists begin to loosen. His breathing slows. His shoulders relax. His unpayable debt has been taken care of in an instant. Many of you know in 2023, 
my family and I experienced the unwelcome stress of medical debt. We took ambulance rides, spent time in both hospitals, in ERs, in ICUs, and plenty of medical offices. And we received incredible care, but we're left with even more incredible debt. Something about in-network, out-of-network, all that stuff. Insurance is super quick to pay what they owe, just so you know. And I spent more time on the phone than I spent sleeping for some of the months last year. We spent everything that we had. We had friends and family who had come alongside us, but there were still bills outstanding. And as we were working through the blessing of EOBs and bills and matching them up and talking to, to advocates, <clears throat> we found ourselves in the office of one such advocate. And we either needed more money or we needed more time, not unlike our parable. But as we talked with the advocate, she expressed that she was sorry for what we'd experienced, that there was a potential way in which the hospital would forgive debt. And if I'm honest, it was really hard to remain hopeful in this faith on the road that we had walked, but it was worth a shot. So we turned in the paperwork and had many more conversations, and at the end of that, the advocate said that we would receive our answer within a month's time, and we had to wait to hear by mail which is just awesome. I live in Frenchtown, right? And it takes a little longer. So while we waited for our answer, we began to settle back into life. And one ordinary morning as I walked to my mailbox and I opened the front flap and began to shuffle through the junk mail and the bills, I saw a letter stamped with the hospital's letterhead. You better believe I opened it before I got inside. And I scanned through the sentences and I found the one that my family and I had been waiting for. And it read this way. Thank you for allowing us to provide care to you as, as a patient. Any outstanding payments for previous treatments has been forgiven. You better believe we celebrated that night. Ice cream sundaes, root beer floats, whatever they wanted. We partied. Having a debt forgiven, one that you've carried, one that you've lost sleep over is incredibly freeing. This is the manner in which God has forgiven us. And in the same way, he expects those who have known his freedom to know how to dispense that same freedom and forgiveness to others. It lifts incredible burdens to look someone in the eye who's hurt you and to say, I forgive you. Not because they deserve it. Forgiveness is never deserved. Yours, mine, theirs, if they deserved it, it would not be called forgiveness. And yet the Father, through the Son, has shown us the freedom that comes through his mercy, which is why the servant's response is so heartbreaking and unexpected. Verse 28 when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii and seized him, and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So if we're keeping track, the first servant, who just moments before had exited the best meeting of his life where he was forgiven the unpayable debt, runs into someone who owes him money. He hasn't even made it home yet. 
It's important to make distinct that this amount isn't pocket change. The debt represented 100 denarii is about 100 days wages. Today that would probably come somewhere in around 15 or 20 grand. So sometimes we could read this passage and treat the debt like it's nothing. It's not. But Jesus in teaching about forgiveness wants us to think about what it would look like for us to forgive big things in our life. Painful debt in the manner in which we have been forgiven. But our first servant sees a fellow servant who owes him four months wages. He's bound with rage and he grabs him by the throat saying, pay what you owe. It's an incredible irony to me that the servant who owes money pleads with the one who's been forgiven and he does so with the exact same language that was used by the first servant hours before. Have patience with me and I will pay you. His ears hear the same words that his lips uttered and yet his heart is not softened but hardened by this request. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He doubles down. He refuses to offer forgiveness or even to allow more time and his fellow servant he has thrown into prison the very place he escaped from moments before. It could be easy for us to cry for mercy for ourselves and to demand justice for those around us. This is the behavior that the king cannot tolerate in our parable. He calls the first servant back and the result is drastically different than the first time. You wicked servant, Matthew 18, 32, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debt. It was the servant's refusal to show mercy that was so maddening to the king. He had received capital F forgiveness and he was unable to pump the brakes on his anger or to consider mercy regardless of the fact that he had just been shown mercy in abundance. We read this and at first read, it's shocking. One who has been forgiven should be willing to consider forgiveness and yet, on the other hand, I don't know about you, but $20,000 is a lot to forgive. It's not pocket change. I, I believe Jesus wished to illustrate to us that there is a genuine cost to forgiveness, to forgiving a debt of any size, regardless of how much we have been forgiven by comparison. The next few verses are where Jesus answers Peter's question way back at the beginning. What is the limit of forgiveness? He says, how often? Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he answers, in his anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And as we read that, any thought of 70 or 77 or 70 times seven begin to fade in the background as we consider the weight of what Jesus has just said to Peter. It is God's expectation that those who have been shown mercy will have the ability and willingness to grant mercy to others. And I think refuse becomes the key word in the text. The servant who had known forgiveness refused to be moved with compassion towards his debtor. 
if you and I have come to know gospel forgiveness that comes through Jesus, then we have experienced a mercy that is unparalleled in this world. Is forgiving hard? Every single time. And the cost of mercy is paid by the one who offers forgiveness. The king is enraged that the servant does not have the capacity to do this. And so Jesus makes the stakes of the parable plain. In case we missed it, the Lord's forgiveness is not for those who are void of his mercy. I want to be clear. What's not being said here is that God's forgiveness is somehow contingent on our ability to be forgiving people. That would go against the freely offered, non-earned salvation that we find in the gospel. But what Jesus asks us to consider here is that if you and I harbor unwavering bitterness, or if we hold a sustained posture of unforgiveness, that we should stop and wonder whether or not we have truly received the forgiveness that is on offer by God. Because God's forgiveness never leaves us the same. A forgiveness that is freely received should be freely offered to others. I believe this is the question that the text invites us to consider today. I'm gonna put these up here. I'm gonna allow us to consider them for a bit of time. Do I refuse to forgive? Are there moments, are there corners, are there relationships in our lives where we harbor unwillingness to consider mercy? And if so, is it possible that I have not yet taken hold of the forgiveness that God has offered me? These are the two questions that are the most important ones that you will be asked today. And if you're like me, we can find confidence in our faith based on the boxes we check. We come to church regularly. We read our Bible regularly. We tithe generously. We serve in the kids' ministry or on the worship team. We cuss less. We're having meals together with our neighbors. I don't know what your list is, but many of us have those things that we can look at and we find assurance in or confidence in. I've done enough. My faith is secure. It's as if Jesus says today, do you want to know if you're mine? If you're mine, you'll forgive like me. In the kingdom of God, mercy that's freely received is freely offered. The question is, have you and I known the forgiveness that God offers us today? Colossians 1. In him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To the tired, to the restless, to the embittered, to those of us who shudder at the very thought of forgiveness because of what you've experienced. Forgiveness is never easy, and it's always costly, but it's worth it every time. Jesus offers his peace through the cross. He desires that we as his church would know the cross's freedom so that we can offer it to others. The king's forgiveness is not a cheap or incomplete forgiveness, but a costly one. One book that was really helpful for me as I chewed through forgiveness over the last month was a book by Tim Keller, aptly titled, Forgive. 
I've so appreciated his thoughts on the matter. And if any of this was challenging or thought-provoking or you still have questions, I'd steer you here um, to read through. It's definitely worth picking up. Oftentimes we flinch when people talk about forgiveness because we've experienced incomplete or stunted versions of forgiveness, counterfeits that leave us wanting more and that might even magnify the hurt we've experienced. And so he gives a helpful list. There are many of them in the book. Um, and, and he exposes counterfeit versions of forgiveness. I just want to walk through this quickly as we come to a close. Sometimes instead of forgiving, we will excuse. And in doing so, we eliminate the need for forgiveness altogether. Sometimes when someone has hurt us, we confront them and they give a good explanation as to why they acted the way that they did. And we can excuse them, but that's not forgiveness. It was actually determined that there was no debt to begin with when we excuse. Or we can deny or whitewash. Forgiveness is not pretending, uh, forgiveness is not pretending sin is not sin. That would be a denial, in fact. Forgiveness starts by taking the full measure of the debt and the cost and the sin. The price cannot be paid unless the sin is reckoned with. Another counterfeit version of, or of forgiveness is re refraining from active revenge. Many will say, I can, I, I can forgive, but I can't forget. That often means, I won't harm you now, but I'll root against you, and I'll deal coldly with you, and I'll root for you to fail, because you still owe me. Also, closely related, suspending judgment. <clears throat> it's possible to say, I forgive you this time, but next time I won't be so nice. I'm counting up, I'm keeping it on your tab, I'm watching you. Equally important, forgiveness is not abandoning justice. Justice is calling the wrongdoer to admit their sin to God and to the one that's been wronged and to bear whatever penalty that God's law or the human law requires of them. Justice is pursued for God's sake, for the sake of others, potential victims, and even for the perpetrator's sake. It is never loving to allow someone in grievous sin to continue in that. Poor substitutes for justice are seeking personal revenge or avoiding justice altogether. One's vindictive and the other's cowardly. Neither seek justice or forgiveness. And the last counterfeit that he lists is immediate trust. Some people in oversimplifying forgiveness think that forgiveness means we have to immediately resume the relationship with the wrongdoer like it was before the offense happened. But until a person shows evidence of true change, we should not automatically trust this person. It can be restored, but the speed at which trust is rebuilt depends on the response of the offender to the correction and the healing that takes place. If the measure of true forgiveness and our reception of it is whether or not we can show true mercy, then we need to fight against counterfeit versions of mercy in our lives and in the church. Because we know those substitutes don't work. And when we offer them, oftentimes they make the problem worse or they embitter us or they make us less willing to walk the road of forgiveness in the future. We as a people and a church 
must reject incomplete versions of forgiveness. We must pursue in our lives and offer to others gospel forgiveness in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. It says in his word that we will be known by our love for one another. And being able to forgive is a large part of that. So lastly, we'll end with four things that comprise genuine forgiveness, that are characteristics. The first, genuine forgiveness only begins when sin is owned. Forgiveness does not pretend that the offense, that the sin didn't happen. Instead, it owns the pain that was caused. It grieves the offense and its effects. Secondly, genuine forgiveness seeks to identify with the person that wronged us as a fellow sinner rather than thinking of them as something different, less than human, or fully defined by the sin. Forgiveness desires their ultimate good through forgiveness, repentance, and healing. It hopes in the gospel enough that God can even redeem those painful, regrettable things that took place. The third thing, genuine forgiveness releases the wrongdoer by absorbing the debt rather than paying them back a full measure of revenge. This is the place where the gospel has to break in for this to even be possible in our lives. It's impossible if we do not root our forgiveness in the forgiveness we have received from Jesus, who had his eyes fully open as he pursued the cross, understood the suffering to bring our freedom. I wanna have a little asterisk here. Forgiveness does not replace the need for justice. Sometimes we can treat those like they're opposites. They don't cancel each other out. The cross of Jesus is the best picture for the place where both justice and forgiveness are accomplished at the same time. God, in his love, poured out his wrath on the sin of mankind to judge that sin and to make a way for the forgiveness that came through Christ. So if you have experienced something that is brutal as a result of another's sin, know that forgiveness doesn't cancel the need for justice to be done. It demands that justice is done. There's no version of gospel forgiveness that short-circuits the need for justice. And lastly... True forgiveness leaves open the possibility of reconciliation. It seeks that in relationship. Although forgiveness does not always end in reconciliation, it holds out a gospel hope that that could be the case. Although it takes time and the rebuilding of trust through repentance and health, forgiveness hopes that sin, what sin has broken can be restored. It's easier when we're hurt to cut bait, to sever relationship, but the gospel gives us a framework that reconciliation can be possible even in profound brokenness. Now, reconciliation requires two parties, and oftentimes that can't be possible. And in certain situations, it it wouldn't be prudent or even safe to do that. But as people who've known the forgiveness of God, We need to maintain an openness to reconciliation as we've experienced God's forgiveness. We're gonna talk a whole lot more about that next week. Since the very beginning, God has pursued a means 
for sinful people like you and I to be forgiven, to experience his mercy. And his heart is that we have experienced might be conduits of his grace, even in times of deep pain. That we might offer the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. Let's pray. Lord, forgiveness is hard. It was hard for you. It was costly for you. And it's the same for us. But Lord, we pray that you might help us to be rooted and grounded in your love. That we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love, which surpasses knowledge, so that we could be filled with all the fullness of God. Help us to know your forgiveness in a way that allows us to freely offer it to others. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church of the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you just heard, you can visit churchinmissoula.com.